On this week's Bet the Process podcast, we have John Murray from the Westgate, and we will be talking about bookmaking, profiling guests or profiling customers. And we'll be, Rufus and I'll do a little comparison between his conversation and the conversation we had with Ted Knutson last week. So if you haven't listened to last week's podcast, you should, as long as you can get over Ted's barista near him making a ton of noise. It's a really good podcast. As always, the Breath the Process podcast is not brought to you by anyone. <laughs> and let's start the process. Bet the process. Welcome to the podcast. Bet the process. It's not that typical cookie cutter nonsense. If you came just for picks, you're in the wrong place. Find a talent with the narrative to make a strong case. Instead of blindly assuming a team must be tanking, we're looking for the edge of Massey Peabody rankings. Crunching all the numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. We welcome on now John Murray, who is, what's your official title? Your director of some sort at the uh, Westgate. If you guys can believe it, they just bumped me up to executive director a couple of wow. weeks ago. Uh, well, well, there's such a market right now for uh, sportsbook employees. Like, talk about being in the right place at the right time. Just being in this industry right when, um, like, when it, you know, conceivably will be going or theoretically will be going national here soon. So they're trying to lock us all in. I think is the, the bottom line. Have you been getting a lot of? Uh, you must be getting a lot of inquiries. I know when you and I talked uh, back in football season there was you know going to be lots of opportunities for you yeah i've had a few places reach out uh in some in nevada some back on the east coast have touched base with me but i'm completely committed to the superbook team here and helping the superbook grow hopefully on the east coast very soon and then after that all over the country how long have you been there uh, I've been in I've been in Las Vegas for 12 years. Uh, this is my second stint working for Jay Cornegay at the Superbook, and I started back here in January of 2016. My original run here was from uh, 2007 to like 2010. I think I have those years right, but I've been in the business for about about 12 years right now. So, uh, what did you do between 2010 and 2016? I- I was working for uh, what was then known as Canner Gaming. Now they call themselves uh, CG Technology, <laughs> but at the time it was Cancer Gaming. Yeah, I'm I'm well aware of that outfit. <laughs> You've heard of them. You've heard. I, of them. I have. I have indeed. Yeah. So that would but, be a good uh, place to start, right? What what? How do you? You've since you worked at both places. How would you compare? How, how would you highlight differences between the, the way the two books are run? Well, Canner was very aggressive in, in sort of taking on all comers. Uh, and then I think here, we're, or we try to be very selective here in who we, um, and who we offer big limits to and who we are a little wary of. And, and, and look, I'm not saying we're always right. There have been guys that have come in here that we have thought were, were square guys, and we've paid the price, literally, for thinking that and giving them big limits. And, and there's other guys who maybe we've identified as sharp, incorrectly and we started limiting them early on and it turns out we probably should have been letting them bet big but uh definitely very different business practices between canner and the westgate but i think canner now has kind of reverted back to more of the nevada norm in terms of the way they do their bookmaking uh, in 2019 i think they're as cautious as, as the rest of the bookmakers in the state 
So, you know, when Cantor came into the market, they, they bought Las Vegas sports consultants back in, I guess, early 2009, and they, they made a bang. And they were, they were, you know, their whole thing was, we're going to try to, we're, we're going to get high volume, low hold percentage, but we're going to kind of, they wanted to sort of take over the industry and, and, and try this new business model. And they were very confident that, that, that it would work just coming from the finance, like from the Wall Street finance side of things. And I think we can agree that it, it wasn't a huge success. And they, I mean, they also put a lot of money into renovating sports books and things like that and had a lot of overhead, which made it difficult. But, but what do you think, do you think that model could have worked? And do you, and why do you think it failed? Well, I think for one thing, Canner, you know, everybody badmouths them, but they deserve a lot of credit because they were the ones that really pioneered the mobile wagering in the state of Nevada, which was something that didn't exist before they got out here. For, I mean, it, well, it didn't, it wasn't widespread before they got out here, let's say that. But I think that where they misjudged the market a little bit is they spent so much money getting into the different casinos they were operating out of. And the whole percentages in our line of work are just not that high. And it's hard to overcome having this huge, these huge overhead costs when you're paying all these different casinos, these big rent checks every month. And, and even more, I'll take it even a step further. It's very hard to balance the action. I mean, it's not everybody thinks that they can just take or people think that they can take money on, let's just say, the Redskins and the Cowboys and just collect the VIG. And that's just not how it works. It doesn't you're always going to have sides that you need in sports betting when you're a bookie and or a bookmaker. And it's all about booking the right people at the right number. That's how you make money in this industry is knowing is profiling the guests, knowing who to give a big bet to and who to not give a big bet to. And I said earlier, we don't always get that right. But I mean, I think that's the most important thing in this industry from my side of the counter. I think profiling guests correctly and determining who to let make big bets or give big bets to is way more important than say haggling over half of a point. So, so what goes into that? Do you have math geniuses behind computers there analyzing bets and the line moves there, or is some of it just kind of looking? What does a guy look like, and does he seem like he knows what he's doing? And is he? I mean, obviously, being a casino player probably helps as well. Yeah, I mean, there's some uh, there's some aspect of like when a new customer comes in and sets up a phone account, and if he's you know, not to give you guys too much of a peek behind the curtain, but if he's under the age of like 35 or 40 and he's got a Nevada driver's license and he wants to deposit tens of thousands of dollars in cash into his mobile app, that's a guy that we're probably going to assume is probably pretty sharp. Like those are definitely signs that would be, this is a guy that we should be a little wary of, at least at the start. But I think there's a big difference between what people consider a sharp better and what we call here at the Westgate, we just call them board cleaners. And what I mean by that, they're guys that are just chasing the screen. They're guys that are just arbitraging, middling us to one of our competitors in Nevada, one of our competitors offshore, playing for scalps and middles. I don't know if you guys consider those guys, quote unquote, sharp betters. Uh, those guys are way more common than a guy that I would call a sharp player. A sharp player is a guy that's taking an opinion and betting into the market and winning. Those guys are very few, few and far between. It's a lot easier to label a board cleaner than it is a sharp guy. True. A sharp better though isn't going to take a bad number. So if a sharp right. better sees that that Westgate has the best number, they're going to take that number. Is that? I mean, uh, that, they, that's definitely true. I mean, the, the board cleaner guys they they show themselves right away because they make a wager, and I just see the whole market blowing up, or I just see that they're chasing the screen. I, I can pick that guy out pretty quickly. The sharp guy, it takes a few more bets before we can identify him or her as a sharp player. So how do you feel about those, sorry, how do you feel about those steam chasers in general? I mean, I know Pinnacle welcomes their action and, but I know other books 
really don't like them. Well, they, 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 they have, we have a bet there. There's a benefit of having those guys around. Cause there are times when we have, like you mentioned earlier, casino players, sometimes we'll extend big limits to a casino player. And maybe it's a little bit more liability than we're comfortable with. And those guys, those board cleaners can come in and help us lay off a little bit of that exposure. So they do have some purpose for us, but we're not going to give them high limits on the phone account because we don't need them just sitting at home, picking us off every time Chris and Pinnacle move. And maybe our team here isn't as quick to move the number. Those guys, for the most part, they don't do much good for us, but there are times where we use them to our advantage. Do you typically ban people for, I mean, you guys are known for not banning people, right? You, you allow people to play as long as they're not like breaking a law or something, right? Never, never banned anybody for winning. In all the years I've been here, we've banned people for compliance violations. Certainly that's number one, uh, being rude to the staff or being rude to other guests or taking a shot at the book. Maybe there's a time where a game was set up incorrectly and maybe they pass posted on us. We've kicked people out for that. But we've never kicked anybody out for winning. We will limit betters. Because, you know, ultimately our responsibility is to protect the house and try to make money for the house. So we, there are guys like that that we certainly limit for sure, but we've never kicked anyone out just because they were winning money. Do you guys limit Rufus? <laughs> uh, you know, I'm not allowed to talk about uh, specific players. Uh, Rufus, do they limit you? <laughs> well, I mean, everybody has a limit, Jeff. The question is, what is the limit? Do they limit you, Jeff? That's true. No, I don't really bet there, so I doubt they would because, you know, I'm just a podcast host. Not not some big time sports better that almost won the World Series of sports betting, but somehow couldn't well, get his phone a, to refresh in time. Well, Rufus is somebody that we definitely respect a lot. I, I will tell you that much. And what we do when you have a guy that you really respect, what you want to do is give that person just enough that you can see what he's playing. You want you want those guys to bet with you, the guys you really respect. You want to see what they're on because you can use that to your advantage in the way you book the games. But you don't want to give them too much to where you're going to end up, you know, uh, being booking against them. I should say. Right, and as a better, I don't want to. I don't want to bet at a place where I know that if I bet there, and they're going to be able to, and, and they're going to go influence the market. And you know, it's always a decision every year in terms of the props at the Superbook whether I should, you know, to to bet those Thursday and and know that everybody's going to copy the Westgate numbers versus just hold off and and hold off bets that I think are good, but. But John, I, I'm interested a little and um, in knowing a little bit more about the sort of uh, the trading, and because you said some of these steam chasers are, are picking off prices where you know Pinnacle or Chris, the offshore market moved, and you guys were a little slow. Do you have somebody manually? Do you have people manually looking over all these markets and seeing these moves? And is it is it all done manually, or is there sort of any automatic aspect to it where you you are tri- like prices will adjust when the market moves or anything like that? Or is that even that's, legal? I don't know. That's a really good question. And the answer is that for now, everything we're doing is manual. We are in negotiations with several different software providers to give us a new platform where that stuff will move on its own when we go into the into like the national space. We've got books all over the country. But for now, while we're just in Nevada, everything has to be done by hand. So sometimes when there's only maybe one or two guys here, especially late at night, and the market blows up, the betters... There are times where the betters do beat our guys to moving the number. There's no doubt about that. So one thing I find interesting is right now that there's basically, I mean, the market is, for the most part, Pinnacle and Chris, I think. I mean, those are the places that are, are mo- moving and leading the market with their moves. It, it mm-hmm. seems like the market is almost easier than ever to manipulate if you're a better and want to, to, to move it without actually getting that much money down because Pinnacle and Chris don't take that that much, especially... 
if you, if you think about like during the NFL season, early week, you can get a lot more down in Vegas than you can on, on say Pinnacle, yet Pinnacle is going to be the, the thing moving the market. So how do you weigh, I guess, the, the sort of timing of like when it is in the week versus your own opinion, I guess, in sort of moving with the market or kind of taking a position yourself? I think it depends on the sport. I mean, if you're talking about the NFL, I mean, there will be a lot of times where we do have an opinion. We do take a position on some NFL games, college football games. If you talk about something like soccer, English soccer, and uh, Dutch soccer, then we're probably just looking at Chris or Pinnacle and letting them tell us where we should be with our numbers. So I, I think it really varies on the, on the different markets from sport to sport. We do take opinions here pretty frequently, especially in stuff like college football. Uh, and NFL to an extent, but there's a lot of stuff where we're we're just following the offshore market, and especially at night, tell some of the more junior members of the team to keep an eye on specifically Chris. So Chris more than Pinnacle. Uh, yeah, in my opinion, I, I think Chris is a stronger number. Um, I, they they do take more money, right? I mean, that's let's say if you had a book, and and what if you what if you actually tried to balance action? I mean, I, I don't know what Chris actually does. I mean, they profile players well and everything, but at the same time, they are taking action, and that's how they're developing like a market number. So, if you were trying to, if theoretically you just took action from everybody, took the same limit, and and moved on moved on action, could you have a sharper number than Chris or than Pinnacle? I think you could balance the action the way you're talking about if you if you, it was something that had a price like a baseball game. It's harder to do that on something with a point spread. If you got to move that point spread, you could see yourself in a position where you could get sided or middled on the game and really get crushed. I mean, I know Canner tried to move the juice on their point spreads, and sometimes they'd have these wacky lines like plus three, minus 150, which I think turns off a lot of, let's say, more touristy betters, the kind of people you want action from. So I just I don't know that it's really possible to balance your books like that when you're talking about sports like football or basketball with a point spread. And as far as us getting to a point where we had a number as sharp as Chris and Pinnacle, that would be something that would require us to take higher limits and see the, the very biggest bets from the very sharpest guys. And it's something that certainly could be in our future as we go national. But, you know, right now when we're only in one state and only at one location and we're off the strip, we just can't offer the limit size that some of these guys want and what they're getting at some of these bigger books. I mean, I do think, though, that you all take, I mean, maybe not as much as MGM or something on, but but you do take probably more than Pinnacle does early week in the NFL, I don't know. I don't know what Pinnacle takes early in the week in the NFL. We take uh, starting on Monday morning. We'll take ten thousand dollars on an NFL side from from anybody, and then certainly there are house players that we give more than that too. But ten thousand would be the, the stated limit for any customer. Oh, so so you're definitely taking more than Pinnacle there. But yeah, I don't. It's, I don't, also, I don't it's know also it's not the size of any individual bet, right? It's also it's also the volume of of yes. what they can bet, and it's the the different types of people that have access to bet on Chris versus necessarily being in Vegas or in Nevada betting um, with the Superbook. Okay, John, another another question. So Ted last week made the statement that the best thing to do is, you know, put the line up and then figure out what the correct side is and then try to be on that side. Is This is this is something similar to what you're saying in terms of not necessarily balancing the action, but taking sort of a position or taking a point of view. How do you guys think through, like, what is the correct side? What's the process by which you would actually decide you're, you're comfortable taking a side? Well, 
my my response to that would be how can you like how do you know what the correct side is on every game every event i mean we have we definitely have certain customers in certain sports that we think are really good and when they make a wager on those sports we'll say okay that is the correct side and we'll always try to book to need that side but that might only be a few events a week so what do you do with all those other events that you're also booking that nobody has tipped you off to what the quote unquote correct side is and in those events, what we're trying to do here is just book, you know, book to the right money, book to the square money, and just let basically let those people gamble against us. And we've got plus 110, so we think we'll come out ahead. Do you think if you, let's say, um, optics aside, if you banned anybody that you thought was a winning better, do you think you'd be more profitable just in terms of revenue from sports betting? I'm not talking about like branding and all that. Yeah. But, but- you're saying just cut off, just completely cut off uh, the, the sharper players, or just you're talking about one guy in particular? No, just cutting off players that you think are winners. If if you I just mean, decided not to take the, that action, do you think <laughs> you would actually? I know do you think you'd make more. We have competitors that do that, and my understanding is that they make quite a bit of money at their shops, and I'm sure that they hold a higher percentage than we do. But we've got to do something to stand out from the crowd. When you talk about, like I said earlier, being one book off the strip, we've got to do something that stands to make us stand out and just going around kicking out anybody with a pulse, I don't think is the right decision for our book. It could be different at other books that have all this volume and all these, all these uh, parlay betters and teaser betters, maybe at their shops, it is the right way to go. But I don't think that's the right thing for us to do at the Superbook. Okay, so so you, so I guess the question is, or the answer is, yes, you could probably make more in the short run, but obviously from a business perspective, it doesn't make sense. Um, so I, I, I'm glad you mentioned parlays. I am curious, I mean, we were talking before about what is the sort of decision amount on a typical NFL game. And I'm guessing a lot of that is going to be, is going to have to do with, with parlays, but so I guess I want to ask, yeah, what is what kind of decisions do you all typically have on NFL Sunday, whatever you can say, and how much are you getting in terms of action on straight bets versus parlays and teasers? Well, you know, it very it completely varies from game to game. I know that's a cop out answer, but it's the truth. I mean, it feels like at our book, at least the Sunday night game ends up being the biggest decision every week. And the reason for that is because all the parlays that have been building up all weekend generally go to that favorite in the Sunday night game. So we usually like to post those, we call them like the 125 afternoon games as soon as we possibly can, just so we can see what our liability is carrying into that Sunday night game. That That's the big one. And we've just we usually need the dog in those games, believe it or not, because it's all parlays and, and teasers going to the favorite in that game. And that's why I think sometimes you see the market come up a little bit on the dog in that game right before kickoff. It's because all the books around the state see how exposed they are to that last game. And they try to write a little bit of money back against the uh, against the favorite in that game and get all, try to limit their exposure as much as they possibly can. But I think I pulled some numbers that I thought that people would find interesting from from our book. This is just at the Superbook at the Westgate for last football season. But in the NFL, we held 1.01% of NFL straight bets, and we held 15.68% on parlays, 15.07% on teasers. So I think that really illustrates just how much of our business, how much of our profits is coming from from parlays and teasers. I mean, if all we did was take straight bets here, we wouldn't be able to be a profitable business at minus 110. Well, do you think, let's say you didn't take parlays. Let's say no books out there took parlays or teasers. I think you'd be returning more on street bets, right? I think it's just that 
Right. Oh, I agree with that. that no, that, that's a fair point. But when you when you get into all the all the overhead costs we have with payroll and taxes, if we were only holding, let's say, two to three percent of the straight bet, we we wouldn't be able to deal games at minus one ten anymore. Not if we wanted to make money. I mean, most of our profits are coming in from those parlays and teasers and future bets where we hold big percentages too. And parlay What's, cards. We, we don't need to get yeah. into those, but those are very profitable for the book. So what, what percentage of the handle is straight bets versus the parlays and teasers? Uh, well, it would depend from sport to sport. And what would you define a straight bet at? Would you, just, would you call a future bet a straight bet? Uh, no, I consider that sort of separate because that's something that you're expecting yeah. to hold a lot more on. But I mean, I'd have to, I'd have to pull that up. I could, but I, I would imagine it's, I mean, certainly well, way more than 50% of it comes from the parlay stuff because the, the public bettors are, are not, they're not making straight bets. They're trying to risk a small amount to win a lot. Lottery mentality. Absolutely. And, th- and those are the guys that were, they're our bread and butter. The, the guys that are making straight bets on phone accounts. And I think Rufus said it earlier, they're always taking the best number of all the different phone accounts they're looking at. You're just not going to hold that much against a guy like that. Yeah, I guess, I guess we should probably finish up soon. So I, I mean, you know, essentially, you know, the, the, the questions that we've had um, come down to this idea of like, now, if you were starting a book anew and you were the main, you know, you, you were the CEO and you got promoted from senior director, executive director, executive director. I don't, to, I don't even yeah. know, Jeff. I got, I got to check my name tag every few minutes just to still remember what the title is. It's very lengthy, but I think currently it's executive director. So if you got, if you got promoted from executive director to head honcho, what, yeah, how, yeah. How, what would your philosophy be in terms of opening the book? Would you, would you go more towards like a William Hill model? Would you, would you go more towards a, a pinnacle model? And, and how would you think through that? Well, I think William Hill, you're probably only asking about bookmaking, but I think William Hill really nailed it with the way that they have such low overhead and they just they just get into all these different locations and push everybody onto their phone accounts. I, I think that part of the business they definitely nailed. But as far as the bookmaking, and I'm not here to comment on how William Hill does business, but I, I would I would continue to bookmake the way we do here at the Superbook. With, we, I would still give lower limits to the sharper players and I, I want to see what those really sharp guys are betting and use it to, in my favor as I you know, kind of book these decisions and uh, cultivate the decisions to the way I want them. I, st- I want to see what those sharp guys are betting on. I still think that's the right way to go overall. Okay. And then finally, just tell us a little bit more about, uh, you talked a little bit about player profiling. I think it was, you know, you alluded to the idea that there's probably some quick profiling that you do for new players. Uh, how much do you look at sort of the player's action and and how do you how do you guys go through that process of trying to understand how to limit guys or or whether to limit them well the best thing to look at is not their their overall dollar figure especially when you're talking about a a newer player the the report i like to look at we call it the closing line value report i want to see how this guy is doing from his bet versus the closing line over and over and over again because anybody could get lucky or unlucky in terms of their win loss uh, in terms of money over a short sample but if, these, if this guy's constantly beating the closing line on all of his bets, that's a guy that I want to keep an eye on. And that's a guy that I probably don't want to get too out of bounds in terms of extending limits to. Anything else, Rufus? You know, I wanted to ask, I mean, I, I think we both know the answer to this, but maybe a lot of people out there don't. But but do you all, is it worth it for you to hire like someone that is a sports better, someone that that has models uh, to predict the games. And I mean, obviously those tend to be a little more expensive, but, but I guess I wanted, to, wanted you to talk about why it isn't really worth it for you guys to do that. I, I think it depends on how big we grow. I mean, we've, 
like I've been approached at at some of these conventions. Uh, like I'll be at, I'll be at ICE next week in Boston, and I've been at a few of the other conventions recently. And I've been approached by some betters about their predictive models, and they've they've told me how their models will give us a sharper in progress line, a sharper second half line. And I think it would depend on a variety of things. It would depend on how big our operation got, if it was nationally a viable operation, and it would also depend on the commercials, how much they're charging us for this uh, product, but I, 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 it's not something I dismiss at all. And in fact, we've set meetings with guys just like that to talk to them about their products. Uh, I think it's something that's very interesting and could definitely be a, a part of the future of the business. Yeah, I think it makes a lot more sense for, for live and second, half, and, and second half stuff, just because that's less of a market thing and you're having to do it more instantaneously, right? Yeah, but as far as like having us having employees back here that have like their own sets of power rankings, if that's what you're saying, and computer models. Well, I, I, I know mean, you do. Have, I mean, you have Jeff. Yeah, Sir, we, yeah. we we certainly do. And and Ed Salmons, uh, he, you know, he's got pretty solid power rankings, especially on college football. So absolutely, we do do that. But again, I I still think the the most important thing from our side of the counter is profiling the guests versus haggling over a point here or a point there in terms of the odds making stuff. I, to me, there's nothing more important than knowing which customers to gamble against and which customers to be careful with. All right. Well, that seems like a good place to stop. So thanks for the time, John. And uh, we'll talk with you soon. Hopefully we'll talk to you again, maybe during the football season. And hopefully I'll run into you in Boston. Oh, you're going to be out there. Yeah. We'll be out myself, Jay Cornegay, the Superbook USA team. We will be out there. Might even see us at Fenway park next week, guys. If anybody's around. Go Red Sox. We'll be there. John, you you better hit me up. Okay. For sure, man. I'll, I'll let you guys know. So that was John Murray from the Westgate. And um, I think it was interesting to hear him and kind of contrast it with um, our conversations with Ted. What were the first things that sort of like jumped out at you, Rufus, about like the the kind of things that he said? Well, I I thought it was a really interesting peek behind the curtain. And I I liked, you know, for me, it it was the fact that they only hold 1.01% on straight bets seemed kind of low, at least on NFL last year. I'm sure that that was below average for them. But but the fact that they take so much on parlays relative to straight bets, that stood out as well. But uh, I liked the, his discussion of, of pro player profiling, and we can contrast that to, to Ted's. But they're, in a way, all these books are trying to do the same thing. They're trying to figure out whose action is sharp and who's not and figure out where to move that, their line as a result. So it's the whole price process of price discovery. Yeah, I think that was interesting. And, you know, like, again, like, as I was hearing him talk about it, it seemed like very different than Ted. But then as I had more time to reflect on it, I was like, it's actually pretty similar in some ways, right? I mean, the idea of really understanding the customer and then understanding, as you said, I like how you call it just price discovery. I think that that's really interesting. The the thing that I found sort of, I think, maybe really different in terms of Chris and then Westgate and then really about where this industry is going to go is the notion of sort of like this physical presence and this notion of like knowing your customer and being able to differentiate, right? That idea that he was saying, you had mentioned it on, on a piece that we, we were before we were here about this Bayesian idea of, you know, profiling these guys with priors, meaning like they're depositing a bunch of cash and betting mobile, you know, in, in the, in the future, that may not be a distinction, right? Because everyone probably will be depositing cash and will be betting mobily because very, you know, people aren't going to be going into physical books probably in 10 to 15 years, right? Would you agree with that? Yes. 
Yes, I think, well, I don't know. But let's say let's say they don't go into books in 10, 15 years. You're still depositing somehow. So you're saying like the, pro, so, the, the profile would be depositing credit cards or a check or why? I mean, like, all, yeah, all like, I'm saying is that like some of the signals that they use right now only work because of the way that their business is, con- you know, con- constituted. Yeah. So, so you know what's interesting is that I, I was in, down in Atlantic City last weekend depositing some money into some of these sports betting accounts, and and um, I, I actually didn't realize at the time you could you could deposit via credit card, which to me is something that is slightly. I don't know. I mean, so I, I have mixed that? feelings. No, I thought you could yeah, in, in New Jersey, you can, which oh, I think you, you could do. I think, that's I think it's awful because yeah, I think I you think have people betting idea. money they don't have. But the funny thing is, so I was depositing money in cash and um, I didn't have any issue with that. It, it um, I haven't placed a bet in New Jersey yet, FYI, but, but I didn't have an issue with that in William Hill or at Hard Rock. Um, but at DraftKings, they wanted all this income verification. And I was like, this is cash I'm giving you. They wanted like bank statements and copy of utility bill. And I was like, you know who I am. This is cash. Like, like they, 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 there was a lot more hoops to jump through. And I wonder how much of that is trying to um, make sure that they're not getting sort of a problem gamblers. Uh, you know, it's sort of, it's their system. It's their process. Um, and I applaud them for like trying, if, if that's the if that's the case behind there. But, but I wonder if part of it's also in a way, trying like a way, if it's a way of player profiling also, which would be smart on their part. I mean, you want to collect that data. You want to know who is betting into you. Yeah, it's it's definitely interesting to think about just this idea of profiling players and and again, like I think the analogy would be the markets, the financial markets, like when a trade happens or when some big fund buy something, you know, back when I used to work, like it's now 25 years ago, you know, we would want to know who was buying certain stocks and depending on who was buying them, it would mean a whole different thing to us than, than someone else. Right. So we would react differently to it. So I do think that there's, you know, obviously like, again, great analogies between the different financial markets. So Jeff, what did you think of the whole discussion on steam chasers? And the fact that it feels like steam chasers, which are people that are looking at moves that happen in the offshore world and trying to beat these sort of traders at brick and mortar books and these U.S. books uh, to a price, basically to to bet there before they're able to move the line in reaction to market making books actually moving the line. And and it those people tend to get booted out of books more quickly than anybody else because um, there it's business that books generally don't love. Um, what did you think of that? Well, he didn't have a negative point of view on it. I mean, he basically said like, it's a good thing for the book to have people doing that. And I, I guess I just don't, did he say that? Uh, he said yeah, he, they're not going to kick people out, but, but no, he said like those people are good because they can help, they can help them. You know, they're not necessarily always the best at monitoring this stuff. And so they'll, these team chasers will come in and, and quickly hit some of those lines so they'll move them before someone big will come in and, and bet them. Um, well, that was kind of what it, he was, he called them board clearers. Remember? Yeah, yeah. And you're saying because those guys aren't getting you know multiple x limits. Well, they know if they know who they are, is. right? They know that they're doing uh-huh. that, and so they can kind of limit them. And so when they know when they get hit by one of them, 
it helps them understand that they need to move something. I mean, he said like, well, he said they're not going to take a bunch of action on apps from them. They're not yeah, going to give them full limits on the app. Yeah. He didn't have like a hugely negative point of view on them. He basically even had like a positive thing on them. I mean, I guess for me, like I've just never been that interested in steam chasing just because it doesn't, you know, like the idea of, of why you bet sports, like searching a screen and, and trying to jump ahead of a move on a screen just doesn't seem very intellectually stimulating to me. I think that the counter to that would be anytime you can get an advantage over the casino, you should get it. Um, but I'm, it, it's just never been like particularly interesting to me. Just like if I see, if someone tells me like, Oh, these, these people haven't moved their line yet because so-and-so is out or whatever, or they haven't adjusted their first quarter, you know, I'll, I'll usually like look to see if it's there, but it's, it's not like I'm, you know, drop like, dropping everything to, to, to get down on something like that, just cause it's not, it's not like intellectually interesting to me. It's, it's also exhausting. Yeah, for sure. I'm a, I'm a proponent of automating as much as I can. And, and that's exhausting. Yeah. But you're, you're like a, a man of leisure and a family man and <laughs> you're trying to establish your, your legitimate lifestyle somewhere else. So you, you've got better things to do than a to be worried about man. this mundane, mundane, professional sports betting life oh, of course yeah sitting yeah. and watching traffic in boston uh the movie you're watching traffic the movie yeah. no no i'm literally watching cars because i have a view of a bridge with cars on it <laughs> okay oh, wait, I w- before we move on i want to clarify the last question i asked john um or tried to ask I, I was not very clear in what i was asking but basically i was i was trying to ask him why like why they don't go out and try to hire a bunch of professional bettors basically to set their lines. And, and um, I didn't do a good job asking it, but, but what I was, the whole point was that um, they basically do in a way by letting indirectly by letting betters, sharp betters bet into them and, and basically help their price, price discovery process. They're essentially saying, you know, we know that these people are probably going to beat us, for a little bit at least, but it'll help us not get beat from bigger people, which is kind of what the steam chasers are doing. Right. So essentially, essentially you were, um, you were asking a question that you knew the answer to. You were like leading. It was like a, uh, it was a rhetorical question almost kind of, kind of, but you know, I don't think the West is the best example for that though, Jeff. What's the lesson to you there, Rufus? You need to know. get better. You need to get better at asking these types of questions. Okay. When, when you know the answer to a question, you got to get better at actually asking it in a way that uh, suits your agenda, which is that you want to say, you want to get him to say basically like, oh, the reason we don't do this is because we already have it with people like you, Rufus, because you're already helping us and we're not. Oh, no, it's not me. <laughs> I'm not in Vegas. Well, but in, you have been you, in Vegas. Are you done lecturing me now? I'm not lecturing you. I'm making a joke. Okay. No. Everyone says I make terrible jokes, so I need to keep making terrible jokes. I haven't made them in a while. That's true. But it was a bad example because the Westgate actually is a little more unique in the fact that they actually do have some good analytics people working there. Jeff Sherman is like a premier golf odds maker, golf odds on Twitter, and Ed Sammons is really good. And yeah, they have um, the their is Ed Sammons like very analytically driven. I'm not sure actually, but I know he's heavily involved. Because he's like the head honcho, stuff. right? Yeah, I mean, but. That's like saying is Paul D. Podesta analytically driven? He's like a head honcho 
running in, running an analytics not necessarily team. Necessarily true because Paul, Paul Podesto was once in very was once doing the spreadsheets and once doing all that stuff, right? Right. I mean, Jeff, are you you're an analytics person, but I'm guessing you're not writing a ton of code yourself, are you? I know, but I'm just saying where your roots come from, right? Yeah. Are Ed Salmon's roots from analytics, or are they more just like sort of gut kind of thing? And I'm not. I'm, I don't know him at all. I've heard great things about him. I'm not disparaging him. I'm just asking a question. Like, yeah, Daryl Morey. Daryl Morey is very analytics driven, but yeah, he certainly is not. Sim Hinkie, all of them. No one is actually like getting their hands dirty in code anymore. Right. They're they're overseeing a team and they're basically setting direction and saying this is how we want to do things. Yeah. And sure. and you can, they can have more effect doing that than actually coding themselves. Yeah. You and I have had this conversation and like that you think that your strength in the world is asking the right questions, not necessarily doing the work. Um but I mean, you're still in point yeah. where you do the work. Where there's people a lot smarter than me. They can code a lot better than me. Well, that doesn't mean they're smarter than you. Coding is not not a representation of being smart, I would say. No, but there are people way, way smarter than me. Well, we have this conversation all the time. This is the smart aspect of it or the, the value aspect of it for someone like a, you know, even like a Daryl, right? Daryl's like asks all the right questions. Like he's, you know, pushed and he's had the moral authority to push a team in a direction that's like so counter to what, the NBA, you know, so extreme to what the NBA would believe should be um, and has really ushered in what is what is this sort of new analytics movement in the NBA. I think it's, for me, like Daryl's career arc is one of the most fascinating things that, 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 you know, any aspiring analytics nerd can kind of like kind of look at it for inspiration. Yeah. So uh, anything else on, on, uh, on, the conversation that we had anything else that you found interesting i i I like that i didn't like that you guys wouldn't let me get into sort of like a tete a tete with the two of you guys and and i was going to try to get you higher limits get him to agree to higher limits on the podcast and then he's bound to it yeah that's that's a good idea but you know it's dangerous those things are dangerous i mean I got victimized by what you were trying to to do there um, this week. I, I was forced to book Preston at fifty thousand to one and Tony Romo to win the Byron Nelson after I said that um, that if I was a book, I wouldn't sweat taking a fifty you know taking fifty thousand to one on on Romo. How much did he bet at fifty thousand to one? A um, hundred dollars. Oh shit! This could be big. Well, I told him. I told him. I told him if he wins, it's five hundred thousand a year for ten years. Oh my god! <laughs> my my girlfriend was not happy about this. Tony Romo's not going to win. I know. So so then I did a Twitter poll asking what what's more likely: Tony Romo gets struck by lightning during the Byron Nelson, or Tony Romo wins the Byron Nelson and overwhelmingly lightning strike one. <laughs> All right. So what are you booking on him? Well, the lightning literally. Li- do well, a, I don't know. Do I, I don't know, but hedge? but literally. I ran 320,000 sims and Tony Romo didn't even get top 20 in a single one of them. So he's not going to win. No, I know. How would you do but, that? But we have to be would... probabilistic here. I would need to run billions of sims to be able to actually have an, like, like the real question Preston... is how many sims would it take to, to, to actually get to a sim where he won? That's so, right. That's what I don't do you... know. If this, if this played out and he won, what do you think would happen between you and Preston? Do you think you guys would just agree to some sort of like compromise? No, I think I would pay, but I think that 
he would I not make you, he would not make you pay him a half million dollars a year for the rest of your for well, I, I think I think there'd probably there's be no some chance buyout. He, there's no chance there'd be some he would, buyout before he won. I mean that's like no, there'd oh, be a you're buyout like oh got it. Like yeah. if if Tony Ramos four shots back going into Sunday, like you know what would you what would you what I would, would you let him buy out for? <laughs> I mean what would you, I mean, it, what would you would buy out such, for? It would be a, such a negative UV buyout, but at the same time, um my girlfriend would probably kill me if I didn't. So oh I don't God. know. We, we should have him on just to, to negotiate this. <laughs> I should look at the leaderboard. Has he teed off today? Oh, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I just love this. This the idea of this is hilarious. No, he hasn't teed off yet. He's a one forty tee time. Did you know that the Westgate has taken more more outright um, action, more in terms of ticket count and in terms of volume of bets on Tony Romo to win at ten thousand to one than anybody else in the field? Crazy. Yeah, they should have like booked, like made cut and all that. I mean, I'm sure there'd be people that would bet on Tony Romo making the cut at 30 to one, even though that's an awful bet. Yeah. Well, they should have done yes, no's. Yes, no's would have been fun. I think if I ever, if you and I ever have a sports book, every single bet we have is going to be a yes, no. We should make that pledge right now. Every single bet? Well, every single like futures type bet is going to be a yes, no. A two way market. It's always going to be a two way market. I like that idea. Markets are bullshit. Well, you can think of a futures market in a way as a, set, a series of two-way markets where you just can't bet on the no at this point. But if you allowed someone to bet against, then in a way, it's it, not it makes... a two-way market because you can't bet on the no. Is the no, point. I know. I'm saying, yeah, and I'm saying that's bullshit. Right? The problem here, though, is that with some of these, like the overround. Um, you can have a small overround on a two-way market. It's something like a hundred to one, and over, it still you can make makes the overround a... bigger. I don't care if you make the overround bigger. Just at, I'm... Least, at least allow there to be a no, because betting the no is, you know, it's like all those people. Like uh, I, I once met a bunch of the Seville guys in in Vegas and played craps with a couple of them, and of course they bet the don't pass. <laughs> really? Yeah. So, Jeff, but what I was saying though is, I was saying like, let's say I'm booking something at a hundred to one. What do you think the take back would be on the other side? The no. If the yes is a hundred to one, what would the no, what would you book, book the no at? Uh, I don't know. I'm gonna I'm gonna answer this poorly. Uh, the no would be mine is like minus one fifty to one. So wait, one to one fifty? That's like the smallest overround I've ever heard of. Did you know that? No, it, no, no. Two, I thought you said 200, oh, 200 to one. Wait, 100 to one. Okay, so it wouldn't be like minus 200 to one? So, I mean, if you want a 1% over round, you make it one to 1,000. Mm. Add up those percentages. Yeah, no, you're right. Which is why, honestly, I think over round is a way to... I have a serious, I have strong opinions on this actually, and we could talk about this at a later time when my thoughts but are more looks, organized. It but actually, it looks like a very big. It, it looks, looks like big, that yeah. way. That's because the way American odds work. But yeah. also, um, I mean, also, I do think overround isn't necessarily the best way to look at it with these sort of extreme things. Um, I think I had a little Twitter rant about that back in February around the Super Bowl, but. But my point there is that you're not really going to be taking big no action there because the market, it, you know, even for a 1% yeah. over round, it's going to seem like it's unbettable. Yeah, that's fair. 
that's a fair thing. But although, although that's, you know, the, the, this in the, so you're saying that basically at the tails, there's no point in doing a no because no one would bet the no. Yeah. Basically being able to set a good price there doesn't really matter that much. I mean, you don't know if, if someone said 100 to one and then one to a thousand on the other side, you don't know what their price is. It could be anywhere in the middle there. And honestly, it's more likely that the price is closer to one to 1000 because they're trying to protect themselves against somebody hitting that hundred to one. They're less worried about people coming in and pounding them, laying a thousand to win one. They just can't win as much that way. And the book is going to be much more concerned about the downside of, of being wrong. Yeah. Like if, if you're right, I mean, because if you're, and if you just, if you assumed, um, well, how do I put this? If you did this the mathematically correct way, basically saying if you um, deriving the odds, if you seeing one to a hundred and thousand to one, and basically dividing one by one one hundred and first by the sum of one one hundred and first and nine hundred ninety and one thousand one hundred and one thousand firsts, you know, basically to get the the no vig over round, it would basically say, oh, the true price is like basically just over 100 to one. But I don't think a book does it that way because there's uncertainty in in that number. And so they want to protect themselves much more against the downside. Yeah. We were sitting here listening to you do math. (laughs) Okay. um, So we've covered the futures we've covered. Is there anything else from those interviews that we would, we covered your bet with Preston, which I think is pretty fun. Um, I think that's it. You got anything else for this week? By the way, we're for for informational purposes. The bet is purely for recreation. It is we are betting peanuts or literally bottle peanuts. caps or something. Bo- literally bottle caps. Recreational purposes. Got it. Um, no, it's a it's 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 a fascinating. It's kind of like the whole idea of of you know celebrity betting and whatnot, and what's en- what's going to end up happening. Um, as we, you know, as this, as things progress, I, I've been thinking a lot about how the industry and like the content and everything like that, how it's all going to change. Um, I know you have been also, are you going to this Boston event? Yeah, I am. I'm, I, I'm not paying the $900 for the, uh, when, the uh by the way, next, because, is it next yeah, it's Monday to Wednesday because it turns out it's all the networking stuff is free. The conference pass is free. It's only, you're only paying if you want to do like see the speakers or something. Got it. So, yeah. People should hit me up if they're in Boston for this. Nice. Jeff, you're not going to be here, I take it? No, but... They, they didn't invite you to speak, huh? No, 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 but I probably should start like going to some of these things more. So if you know about them, let me know. And, and we'll, we'll be excited to get a full report from you um, from your time there. So uh, I think that's it. Unless you have anything else, Rufus? Anything else we want to cover? No, I think this is good. We got we covered some math, we covered some bookmaking, and um, hey, hit us up on Twitter for guest suggestions for next week. Or actually, we'll take a break next week for in two weeks. No um, PGA Championship podcast. We can I like do that. that if you're no, actually we don't need to. We don't I don't need want to get reverse engineered though, so we always got to worry about that. Although you're never willing to say anything. Is it PGA next week? Yeah, it is. Beth Page Black in New York. Oh wow, that's exciting. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, what's it's, the, it's never the, hosted a PGA volume, championship. 
what's the volume for you in the PGA compared to sort of like the masters? Um, probably not quite as, as large, but just cause there isn't quite as much betting interest, but it'll still be um, pretty substantial. Are we going to, we need to at least, maybe we do need to do a podcast because I think the new tradition is at least that you give out one fade for each major, <laughs> just so we can see if we can like continue this trend of you getting these, these guys you fade to actually be on the leaderboard on the last day. <laughs> yeah. My, my fades have done awful. I mean, they've that's done really saying, well. That's, actually. That's, that's what I'm saying. It's just kind of funny, right? Like it just, it just is a nice tradition to keep going. So maybe we will do a small PGA pod just so Rufus can release his PGA fade. Or I can just release it on Twitter. I'm gonna fade somebody, and they're gonna get the no, mark. That, now you're just trying to now you're just trying to get more Twitter followers than me. It's just a bullshit game yeah. you're playing. You're on to me. You need to invest in this podcast, not in your Twitter following, which I feel like is more important to you than this podcast, which is hurtful to me. Yes, sir. All right. Yes, Thanks, Dad. guys, for listening. We'll talk to you guys all maybe next week. Numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. The bottom line is watered down. It seems like they don't get it. Puppet teaser, but the end just running off a of leaded. None of it's organic. It all sounds synthetic. That's why I fucks with Jeff Ma and his dog Rufus. No locks of the year. They just tell you what their truth is. Maybe make your pockets fatter as the